This is Dead Stick Radio, Episode 7, recorded Wednesday, November 6, 2019. Buying a Buccaneer, Part 1. This episode is brought to you by AirRaceGear.com, the place to buy Air Race merchandise. It's been a long time. What do you think, about three, four months? Three or four months, yeah. I think uh, the last episode we did was before Oshkosh. Yeah, published episode. We did record another one before Reno on our predictions, which never did get published, so that's okay. And the reason it's been so long is because you've been on an adventure. I have been. I've, uh, I did a, a bit of calculations here, and it turns out I've spent about a week and a half here in Edmonton over the summer. Most of that other time was off traveling. I did uh, Oshkosh, drove all the way to Oshkosh, yep. drove all the way out to Ontario, drove all the way out to the Maritimes, saw Prince Edward Island. Drove back, spent some time out in Kelowna. Wait, back to Edmonton or back to Ontario? Back to Ontario and then back to Edmonton. And then and... you spent some time in Ontario again. See yep. the pattern developing? Yep, yep. And, uh, and then I was off in Kelowna for a few weeks and uh, finally back off to Ontario for about a month. So let, let, let's back up here for a second. There, there's a lot of Ontario in that. And I understand what Oshkosh is. I understand what uh, Reno is, obviously. But what's in Ontario? So Ontario... <laughs> Ontario has the central hub for an aircraft called the Lake Amphib. They're the best outfit in probably North America to actually maintain these is is based out of there. The reason I was there is because that's the kind of plane I just bought. There's the bomb. So my journey to actually buying a Lake Amphib has kind of been a bit of a long one. Um, Initially, when I started flying, uh, my, my initial flight instructor... Um, he was telling me about the plane he owned and I was, I was always interested in, in float planes and, and, uh, and whatnot. And he told me about this plane. It was this colonial skimmer and I, well, I got to look this thing up. So I pull up my phone, I Google it. Actually, I don't even think back then we had phones. It was 2007. We didn't even have iPhones, but pull it up, Google it for, and find this really interesting looking aircraft. It's got an engine on top. It's got retractable landing gear and lands on its belly. So time goes on and becomes around this spring. I, I start, uh, I guess it would have been last fall. I decide, you know, it's time for me to start getting back into flying again. And Scott's kind of hounding me. He's like, you should buy a racer. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I'm really into racing. But I decided, you know, start getting back into flying. And this spring I went off to Kelowna to do a float rating. So I did a float rating out there and. Pretty much as I was finishing that up, I started looking online for planes. I'm like, well, I'm not really going to buy a plane. It, it, it looks like it'd be kind of fun, but, you know, maybe, maybe not. And eventually just kind of started getting hooked and said, you know, I, I just, I want to do this. I want to buy a plane and actually go and fly this thing. And I started really, really looking around. Yeah, and you were flying at flying clubs and stuff too, right? Yeah, exactly. I'd been renting it uh, at the local flying club. We had Sophia on here. I was renting out at her club there. And just says no 172s. But with 172s, you can't really go anywhere. You're you're stuck. This is good for those listeners that are uh, sport pilots that are not looking at getting into the airlines that are just flying for fun and are renting right now. Exactly. So every kind of flying I was doing with them was you're, you're limited in time. You get like a two hour block. If you want to fly for, if you want to go and take a plane for a weekend, you're paying is like a minimum four or six hour, uh, rental rate, uh, bare minimum per day 
if you could even get them to uh, allow you to. And this is kind of how most clubs operate. Um, so it kind of precluded me from actually going in and flying anywhere, anywhere of any kind of distance. Like I couldn't take a plane to Oshkosh. It just wouldn't happen. So uh, I decided to, you know, time to just buy my own plane that I can actually fly on my own schedule, my own time, do my own thing. I can take it whenever I want to take it or let it sit in a hangar whenever I want to let it sit in a hangar. I don't have to, don't have to fly it or, or I can fly it. And um, I, so I started really looking for Lake Amphibs and the first one I initially looked at was out in, uh, out in Kelowna. Um, I sent off a few emails and they didn't really get back to me very much. Uh, but it sounded like there was probably something wrong with that airplane and, and it's kind of foreshadowing for, for some future aircraft I was also looking at. So wait, wait a minute. What's the connection here between, uh, Henry Wyatt skimmer that you mentioned earlier and this Lake Amphibian? Is it, it's not the same cause this one here looks very different than Henry's. They look, well, they look fairly similar, but this one's stretched out. So it's a, the, the Lake Buccaneer is a, is a bigger airplane. And so, is it the later revision, like design revision off the skimmer? Was the skimmer the earlier one? Exactly. So the the progression of the the lake uh, the lake models comes from originally Colonial skimmer. Uh, their C one skimmers were their first airplanes. They were either two or three seat variants. Uh, the third seat kind of sit sat sideways in the back, and they had a little hundred and fifty horsepower engine in them. Um, they were uh, pretty functional little planes, but they. Um, they just didn't have the really capacity that you needed. Uh, so later on, they started making the C2 skimmer, which was a slightly increased version of it from Colonial as well. And again, they were, they only made a few of those. I think they only made, maybe only made one of those. And then they started off on another company called Lake and they took same that, people, same people, same people. And they took the same exact design and just stretched it out and increased the engine horsepower to 180. So what year was that? That would have been uh, late 60s, early 70s. I don't remember the exact year they started making the um, uh, the Buccaneers. So the original Buccaneer was a LA-4-180, which is a 180 horsepower, IO-360 powered uh, airplane. Had four seats in it, but, you know, like most four-seat airplanes, it's kind of, you know, two smaller-ish, kind of mid-smaller-ish people in the front and, and two kids in the back kind of thing. Uh, you don't get a whole lot of extra capacity in those. And those were carbureted engines, uh, and they made a whole bunch of those. Uh, then they started, uh, then they upgraded the the aircraft to the LA-4-200, which is the same IO or same O360 engine, except they fuel injected it. So uh, the A1 uh, A1B engine instead of the A1A. Uh, that gives you the extra the fuel injection and removes so removing the carburetor gives you an extra 20 horsepower. And, uh, and they started making those ones. They made a whole bunch of those ones. Uh, later in the models, they started making what were called the EP versions, which uh, had a slightly different version of the O3, IO360 in them. What's uh, EP stand for? Uh, so uh, Extra performance? Extra performance, yeah. So <laughs> they, they extended the, the cowl on top, extended the, uh, the prop shaft out a little bit to give you a little bit better um, separation from the, uh, the cowling onto the prop because it's a pusher prop on it. And that was ostensibly supposed to give you a little bit more power, but realistically, it it, it didn't. Uh, people say it gives you a little bit more oomph off the off the water, but in reality, it's it's pretty negligible. Uh, they also mandated uh, wingtip sponsons, uh, or not wingtip, but wing sponsons uh, with fuel in them, 
Uh, mine, uh, a bunch of the, the 180s and the 200s had those as an option, but on the EP, all of them had it. So wait, wait, wait. The early ones did not have Sponsons. Well, they had Sponsons, but they didn't have fuel in them. Oh. So they were just flotation devices. Right. And Sponsons are basically um, uh, mini pontoons out on the wings. Exactly. Like almost at the tip. Exactly. They're, they're kind of hanging down. I'd say about halfway out the span or yeah. three quarters of the way out the span. Yeah. And uh, and so that's uh, they started making those for a few years. They didn't make a whole lot of EPs. Uh, then Lake kind of went dormant and stopped making airplanes for, for several years. Like what year was this? I don't remember the exact year. I believe it was kind of mid-late 70s. Um, so they'd made... It made somewhere around a thousand lakes uh, at that point. Over a ten-year run. Over about a ten-year run, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then they came back in kind of full force in the late '80s, early '90s with the the Renegade, which again they took the exact same airplane and they stretched it out a little bit. Uh, they made a few modifications to the tail, and uh, they upped the engine size to I don't remember what engine it is. I think it's a it's like a four seventy or something. Um, a Continental? Uh, no, it's, it's still Lycoming. I just oh. I can't remember the exact model number of the the engine, but it's a 250 horsepower engine in it, and ostensibly that's a six person airplane. Uh, but most people got them configured for uh, for four large seats, so you could fit really four people properly in that. Four four big guys can easily fit in that airplane. Uh, a little bit later, they upgraded it again and added a turbocharger to the to the, the, the Renegade. To the Renegade, and that was the 270, and that's ultimately where they ended up with those. Uh, they also made uh, a um, a military version of it called the Sea Wolf, which effectively is the same airplane but has um, some uh, attachment points for for things like missile launchers and and radar and stuff like that. And uh, and that's kind of where the, the Renegades were. That's how the the whole lake. Um, heritage happened oh so the renegade is the la-250 the la-250 yes right and what what's the um what's their buccaneer la-4 it's an la-4 yeah la-4 either 180 or 200 right yeah so i'm just looking at pictures right now the renegade looks much larger like way larger than the buccaneer if if you're putting them right next to each other you can kind of see that they're a little they're bigger but they're not a huge amount different if 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 you didn't know what you were looking for, you wouldn't be able to tell which one was which. Yeah, because I, I had no idea what the difference was between the two. I, I've heard of the names, but that's it. And just looking at pictures, like between yours and uh, this Renegade I found on Google, the the big noticeable factor is the uh, propeller or the engine cowling is much, much longer. Yes. Yeah, it's a six-cylinder engine instead of a four. Yeah, that really gives it away in my opinion. Yep. The other thing you can really notice is on the tail section – uh, you'll notice the rudder. There's in the in the Buccaneer, it's just a flat rudder, whereas in the Renegade, there's actually a split in there where the where the elevator goes in. See, so it's a little V split in there. Oh yeah. So, those are the those are the two things. You can also see there's a there's a, a, the the horizontal stabilizer kind of goes up the spine of the airplane as well to give it a bit more rigidity. Whereas mine just has a flat spine on it. Oh yeah, that makes sense. I see it. But not, a, not other than that, not a whole lot of difference. Uh, they kind of fly at about the same speed. The Renegade, uh, it, it does have more carrying capacity, but not a ton more. Uh, it burns a lot more gas than mine does. And yeah, as it would, uh, as it would, yeah. And uh, and it climbs climbs faster, but it's also about four times the price. So, whoa, <laughs> those ones, uh, yeah. If you look on Barnstormers, you'll notice very easily that their uh, their price is 
quite substantially higher. Now, obviously, they're much newer airplanes as well. So instead of coming from the 70s, they're coming from usually the 90s and, and whatnot. And that makes sense. So you get less corrosion. Most of them are, or I'm guessing the majority of them are cleaner than the older Renegades, that kind of thing, or the older Buccaneers, I should say. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So on my journey to actually to buying one, I uh, was initially, I initially was drawn, I just started Googling around uh, for one. Obviously I was looking on Barnstormers and there wasn't really a lot of good options out there. Uh, they didn't, didn't seem to be many that were maintained or, or low or medium hours on them. They're all all either completely tapped out or there was some problem with them. A lot of them in, were in pieces and not not a whole lot on Barnstormers or trade a plane or, or whatnot. Or there was a few on there that were enormously expensive, like double the price of everything else. Uh, I was Googling around for Lake Buccaneers and literally Googling just Lake Buccaneer for sale. And I stumbled across this website, uh, Lake Central Air Services out in Muskoka. And they had a, a couple airplanes available out there. Uh, and there was one particular one that said had a turbocharger on it, an LA-4-200 with a turbocharger. I'm like, well, that was the Renegades that had turbochargers, wasn't it? So I started searching around and couldn't find really any any, any more information. So I sent them off an email and said, hey, is that a is that LA-4-200? Are you sure that's a Buccaneer and not a Renegade? Not realizing that they were the central hub of, of everything lake-related. Uh, lake and the guy gets back to me. He's like, yeah, that's a, it's a turbocharged. And he sends me a bunch of information, sends me a bunch of pictures. And it says, uh, yeah, you want to come out and take a look at it? And I go, yeah, sure. Why not? So uh, I'm making a few other phone calls, calling, uh, calling my friend Eldon. And he was poking around looking for other planes as well. And and after a little while, I start, I just say, all right, screw it. I'm just going to go out and take a look at that, uh, that plane out in Muskoka. So... I fly out to Muskoka to take a look at this airplane, and it's in quite a bit worse shape than I than I was actually expecting it to be in. Uh, take it up for a flight. Uh, we're flying around, and it, it seems to fly all right, but it it looks pretty grimy. Like the thing hasn't been washed in a while. It looks like the the paint is all kind of chipping a bit on it, and it's just kind of not rubbing me the right way. And I was expecting a plane that was in reasonably good shape, but having a little bit rough interior, like a rough, rough seats. Um, but this was quite a bit worse than that. And what really kind of sealed it for me is we were taking off, uh, we'd go out and get some, some lunch and we were taking off and we get, you know, 50, hundred feet off the deck and we get a radio call from someone on the ground or maybe we're 500 feet or so. We get a radio call from someone on the ground. They say, uh, Amphib that just took off. You have a landing gear trailing. And we look out, and over there on the left-hand side, there's a la landing gear still dangling down. The right-hand side is up, the nose is up, left-hand side is just dangling there. And I'm like, oh boy. Um, Alright, well, definitely, that's a definite no for me. So, we get back and talking to him, and I, I tell him, yeah, I can't I can't even come close to that price. This, this plane needs, obviously, a lot of work. And, and uh, I just end up walking away from that airplane. And I flew immediately from there off to Las Vegas. Um, so we'd found another one uh, out there that, again, sounded pretty good. And they're talking it up. This is a pretty good, this one's in pretty good shape. It's been stored out in the desert for, for many years. There's no corrosion on it. It's in, it's in good shape. But, you know, it was in a, they have to admit, it was in a sandstorm. And 
uh, you know, it's been repainted, and all it needs is, you know, to be restriped. And everything's, everything else is fine on it. It should be good to go. You could, you could fly it home tomorrow. Okay, cool. That, that sounds pretty good. And get out there to Vegas and take a look at this plane. And clearly it hasn't been redone. Uh, there's, it's still completely covered in, in sandblasting. It's just, there's just pits in the paint all over the place. There's oil coming out of the, out of absolutely everywhere. It's just leaking oil through, through the central hull. It goes, you can see where it goes in at the top into the central hull and then pouring out the bottom. It's just, this thing is an absolute mess. Uh, they had tried to repaint it. He was a bit honest there. They did try to repaint it, uh, part of the wing with, uh, spray paint. Um, it definitely looked... You could tell. It was bad. It was really <laughs> bad. So I, I just, I told them, like, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not interested in this plane. So walked away from that one. And I kind of kept looking around. I, I made a few other phone calls. Um, I actually made a friend on one of the Lake Amphibian groups, um, when I was actually out in Muskoka before I went off to, to Vegas, uh, he said, yeah, why don't you come out and, and, and take a flight with me? I'll show you my plane and, and, and whatnot. So I drive out there. He lives right near Toronto and we go take a, a flight in his plane. And compared to the one that I'd just been in, the, the one that was a, a bit of a mess out in Muskoka, his was significantly better. Everything like the paint was still, was still pretty good on it. The panel was nice in it. The thing ran really well. And I realized I need to make sure that I'm buying a plane on at least this standard. Uh, and after that, uh, that's, that's pretty much all I was looking for. So I stopped really looking for, um, you know, good deals on them. I was only, only looking for planes that were going to be ready to fly. And, and that's a good lesson to everybody listening on buying airplanes that are cheap. Uh, typically, if you buy one cheap, it's because it needs a lot of work to bring to a uh, a normal, acceptable standard again. And you're going to end up either buying it up front or paying for it later. Exactly, exactly. So we were looking a lot on like blue book values. Uh, so a friend of ours, he has, uh, he has access to a bunch of blue book values for aircraft because he's an aircraft dealer. And all... Every plane that I actually looked at that in that actual price range uh, that, that matched Blue Book values were all in very, very rough condition. And people were telling me how, how they were all in good condition. So from one thing I can tell is that uh, when buying used airplanes, people are definitely overstating how what kind of condition those aircraft are in. Um, so uh, a few months go by and... Uh, I started. I kept. I was still looking around. I put out put out an ad on on Barnstormers that I'm looking for an airplane. When was this? Like, like August? I think even earlier than that. It's probably June ish, maybe maybe July. And post an ad out there, and I get a phone call or I get a text, uh, maybe two hours later from uh, up up a little bit north of of Edmonton. And the guy goes, yeah, I was looking to sell this plane. I was going to be selling this into the States. I had a buyer already. But if you're interested, um, you know, that guy is kind of waffling on it. You can come and take a look at this thing. I'm like, great, I'm coming out tomorrow. Go out and take a look at this other airplane, and we can't even get this thing started. It's only an LA4-180, so it's got the carbureted engine, but also does have a turbocharger. And talking to the guy, the plane hasn't actually been in the air for about 10 years. 10 years. 10 years, yeah. And he tells me, oh, but don't worry about it. I've ta- I've done high-speed taxis up and down the runway. It's fine. Well, we know that that's not fine because you can't get the engine hot enough to boil off the, the water and the oil. 
there's so just ground running it is actually probably doing more damage than letting it sit. So ultimately that was a And this was a private sale, right? This is a private sale. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, just just make me an offer, just make me an offer. And to be fair, he wanted a very, very small amount of money for that airplane. And he's like, Yeah, I'm not really negotiable on it, but it's a very, very small amount of money. And if you're the kind of person that wanted to take that thing and turn it into an experimental aircraft, uh, and or, or just do straight up owner maintenance on it, you could probably turn that thing around for for a reasonable, a reasonable amount and have yourself a good flying airplane. It wouldn't be worth much, but it'd be a, a, a flying airplane. But it was definitely way more than I was willing to bite off, especially because of my my ultimate plans of the airplane. So I decided to skip out on that one. Now, shortly after that, I got an email from the guy out in Muskoka. He goes, yeah, I had a heart-to-heart with the owner of that, uh, that airplane you, went, you, you took a look at. And he, he, he realizes that it's, it's way overpriced right now. And, and, you know, if you came back with a, with a good offer, uh, a good offer in hand, you, you know, a, an honest offer, he'd probably, probably go for that. And I just go, you know, I, I, don't, think, I don't think so. It's still just in too rough of condition for me. The very next email that he sent, maybe 20 minutes later, is like, oh, okay, well, now that that one's off the table, I have another one coming in in a week. It's basically the same airplane, but this one's in a lot better shape. And we haven't seen it yet, but we'll take a look. And again, it's another LA4200 with a turbocharger. So these are apparently not all that uncommon, but uh, they are reasonably uncommon. And go out and take a look at it, and sure enough, it's quite a bit better. It's pretty much exactly what I'm looking for. It's in pretty good shape it's got uh, the hull is in good good condition the engine is good and clean it's making compression there's no no metal chunks there's nothing it's it's a plane that's in much much better condition and uh, ultimately i ended up making an offer and, and buying that plane so so okay so we go to we go to oshkosh that's like uh what mid-june or mid-july i mean yep. end of july something like that and I remember you spent so much time in your car on the phone trying to deal with the paperwork behind that process. Yeah, some well, some of that was that. I was uh, well, you were closing the deal at Oshkosh. I was closing the deal at Oshkosh. Out I of was, a tent. Out of a tent. Yeah, sitting <laughs> on my phone. Oshkosh actually has surprisingly good Wi-Fi. So uh, in in tents out there, uh, closing off on the deal and getting everything all kind of sorted out. The plan was to go immediately after Oshkosh out and start start doing training on it uh so they'd done um they'd done all the the pre-purchase inspections they'd done all that stuff uh, money had been sent off to them and wait, wait how, how'd you do that from oshkosh because with me like every airplane i've bought has been with a bank draft or a certified check how'd you do it remotely because you weren't even close to your bank Exa- not to mention in ontario exactly so i deal with two separate banks and one of my banks the one that have the the enough money to actually close on this deal you have to go into the bank with a bank card and and put it into the machine, put in your PIN number, and then they can do that that transfer. But so you did this, it through a bank transfer? Well, yes, I did it through a bank transfer. So I, I was going to do that, but of course, we didn't close in time for Oshkosh. And of course, my bank doesn't exist in the States. It only exists in Canada. So there's nowhere I could go. I'd have to drive four hours north to to Canada to just go and put my my, my thing in there. So instead, I transfer money off to a separate bank account that I have, which then they they don't accept transfers in in bank. They only accept transfers over the phone. So I set up a bank transfer over the phone using my other bank. I had to transfer from one bank to the other bank, and then from that other bank to them over the phone. It was so. Would you do that process again 
So the, the yeah, reason I'm asking work. is if people are listening that are trying to buy an airplane, would you still do a bank transfer or would you just give them a check in person? I would still do a bank transfer. Uh, I, just because of what I know of the banking industry, it's not a particularly efficient industry. And checks can sometimes be a bit of a nightmare. Um, effectively, a bank draft is just an electronic form of that. And uh, and it's, it's reasonable enough to just do a bank transfer. And especially later on when I started dealing with just the same bank. Because I, I shared the same bank uh, as the other, the other guys, the same banking company. And it allowed me to do, not even do bank transfers. I could just do direct deposits. So I just gave them the account number and boom, it appears in their account within 30 seconds and with no fees whatsoever. So that was that was all right. Um, uh, but uh, obviously when you're trying to close it while you're in another country, it kind of makes it a little bit more difficult. But So then you bought this airplane, you closed on it in Oshkosh. In Oshkosh. And then you, uh, after Oshkosh, you drove, you, didn't you drive to Ontario again? I drove straight to Ontario. Now, my plan with that was it's it's closed. The plane's going to be basically ready. Uh, I've, I've directed them to do some some minor work on it and because uh, there were some certain things that I needed to get done. But I was like, all right, well, I'm going to drive out there, and then we'll do that when I'm there. Well, somehow we got our wires crossed, and they just started working on some of those things uh, before I even got out there. Uh, certain things like um, replacing the brakes. Uh, it had original Goodyear brakes on it, which were atrocious you couldn't even do you couldn't even do uh like even a run-up wasn't wasn't possible if you try to get the the the, the prop up to 1800 rpm i think it just starts skittering across the taxiway it was absolutely useless so I'll put on some proper uh proper um uh, uh brakes onto there you put cleveland's on yeah put yeah. cleveland's on yeah um and uh there's a handful of other things but when i got out there and they said oh we didn't realize you were coming out here that I told the training guy I was going to come out there and told him exactly what days and what my plan was. He goes, Oh yeah, that's, that's good. We'll be, we'll be ready then. So I get out there and the maintenance guy comes up and he's like, I, I be honest. I, we didn't realize you were coming out here. Uh, we have the push pull tubes out of the plane right now. Cause one of the things I directed them to do is inspect them. And if they need to be replaced, be to replace them. They said, we have the push pull tubes out of the plane right now. Um, it's not a not a big deal, but the problem is we've kind of taken them apart because we're replacing them because there's a, a little bit of corrosion. It wasn't a major amount. It would have still been safe, but you know, 50 years to only have that much corrosion is probably just fine. But they're apart, and we can't really put them back together because taking them apart you know, to get the the hardware that we need to reuse it kind of destroys the old ones, and we don't have the uh, the new uh, material to make new ones. So of course, all right, well when's the new material coming in they figured it was going to be next week and took my little trip out to the maritimes came back to go and help them and again they go turns out our supplier is a few weeks backed up it's gonna be another probably another couple weeks until we get the parts back out so again i ended up waiting for for a few more weeks uh drove drove back and eventually went back out there so finally i'm i'm ready to actually go out and start training uh, i've finally received my engine monitor which is actually one thing I bought when I was out in Oshkosh, because you know, at Osh, I, if I bought it at Oshkosh, I ended up saving about a grand on the on the thing. So it was like I saved like twenty or thirty percent on the thing, partially because of uh, taxes and partially because of um, uh, they just had a, a really good discount. So I put an e a JPI uh, EDM nine hundred in the in the plane, and finally get all the parts out there and fly out there and finally we're ready to go and that's i think where we'll cut this podcast off 
and then we'll talk about the actual process of picking it up, doing the whole training, and all of your lessons learned. All the with it, all the airtime you did, all thirty hours in seven days. <laughs> yep, yep, that's quite a bit. Uh, I, I've done in a month now. I've done over fifty hours in the plane already. Okay, so part two. Brian has done thirty hours of dual training. No, twenty five hours 25 of dual, dual dual training, and five more solo, I believe, before ten, you left. Ten. Uh, I only I only did about. Two hours of solo before I left. Okay, and so 25 hours dual in what, six days? Uh, yeah, about six days, yeah. Yeah, and then another two hours solo. Yep. And then with how many hours total time in powered airplanes? In powered airplanes, PIC, at that point, I think I'd had maybe 25 so total he, hours PIC. 25 PIC, how many dual? Uh, uh, dual, under 100. I think it was just over 100 at that point. So you're about 120 total. Yep. Or so. Yep. So 120 hours total time. He gets in this airplane that he's only owned for like a week from in Ontario, a seaplane of all things. Yep. And you cross country that sucker by yourself. By myself. After never doing a cross country like that before. Over the Canadian Ontario, Shield, all the way back, all by myself. To Edmonton. To Edmonton. After the only cross country that I'd ever done was just around the kind of cabbage patch for, for my license several with, years with ago. With low clouds. Low clouds. Airspace. Airspace. Aircraft maintenance. Yeah. And the whole shebang. That's part two. Part two, yeah. And I'll tell you about times I almost almost had a... It was twice I almost had mid-air collisions on the way back as well. All right, that's coming. That's next. That's next. This podcast is brought to you by airracegear.com. Have you ever looked for a place to sell your uh, not only air racing, but also aviation merchandise? Check out airracegear.com. Get in touch with the guys and they'll they'll list your gear for sale. No problem. www.airracegear.com.